Thank you. <clears throat> well, good morning. Great to see you all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team, and it's uh, really great to have you here today. I don't know how many of you uh, love email. Anybody love email? Like you just can't wait to get to work tomorrow and check email, right? It's, it's pretty, it's kind of the bane of most of our existence. Um, and uh, emails are hard enough to keep up with and they're hard enough to respond to in a timely manner. Uh, they're especially hard when people send them to the wrong address. I remember a number of years ago, someone was very upset with me because they had been emailing me and I had not responded and I had not responded and I had not responded and they got so frustrated that finally they sent an email to one of the other people on our staff and said, here's the email I sent to Luke, will you please get it to him, he is not responding and they passed it on to me and I was not responding because they sent it to the wrong address. I never got it. You know, my email address was .com, they were sending it to .org, and I never got it, right? So this thing that was intended to come to me, but it couldn't get to me because it went to the wrong address. Now, was I being rude and narrow-minded by saying, in order to email me, you have to put these letters in this order? <laughs> was that rude or narrow-minded of me? No. It's just, if you want to email me, this is the address, this is the letter the orders have to go into, this is how it works. If you do that, I'll get it. I, I still may struggle to respond in a good time, but, but I'll, I'll do my best. Now, we get this. We, we get that, that there's a kind of defined way to communicate to, to people through email. We get that you can't just dial up any phone number you want and reach somebody. You actually have to pick a very narrow number that is their number. We get it when we think about connecting with people, but when it comes to God... We object. When it comes to God, if God says, hey, here's the way to get to me, and it's only this way, we go, wait, 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 God, that's not fair. That's not right. That's what we're talking about here today in this second week of our series uh, on countercultural convictions. That's what this series is. We're going to uh, do from uh, th this started last week, going up through Easter. And what we're looking at in this series are areas that, that need clarity in a confused world. Areas that, as you look at the world outside of us, and as we look at Christians, and as we look especially at Christians here at Redemption Gateway, things that we could get mushy on, things that we could get confused about, and we want to try to bring clarity, and we want to try to bring precision and conviction to some areas that need it. Now, we looked last week at love. Love is the lens through which we're looking at this whole series. So all the rest of the messages in this series uh, are not given in spite of love, but because of love, because of love, because of the love of God and God is love and God has shown us his love in Jesus, in Jesus love walked among us and because of that love, we have some convictions about things. There are certain things that are true, that are important and because of love, it's important that we clarify those things. So today we're talking about Jesus. Somebody asked me before, hey, what's the sermon about this week? And I said, Jesus. And they're like, oh, I get it. It's, it's always about Jesus. Well, that's the goal. Uh, but, but today, like the title is Jesus. That's, that's kind of the main thing. So uh, here's kind of our big idea for today. In a world that validates many different paths to God, we believe that faith in Jesus is the only way for us to be forgiven of sin and reconciled with God. That's what we're talking about today. 
In a world that validates many different paths to God, we believe that faith in Jesus is the only way for us to be forgiven of sin and reconciled with God. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let's pray together and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you that there is a way to get to you. We thank you that there is a way that you've made yourself known to us. God, we thank you that we aren't left without a savior, that we're not left without a hope, but that we have a true and living hope because of Christ. And so God, I pray today that Jesus would be exalted, that he would be made much of, that we would find him to be the treasure that is worth giving up everything else to have. God, would you give us love and compassion for everyone in this world who does not have Christ? God, would we remember that apart from you, we're lost, we're blind, we're dead. And would that inform and fuel our desire to share this good news of Christ with others? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So here's what I want to look at today is I want to, I want to look at the claim of Christianity as it relates to Jesus being the only way to God. And then I want to look at why we resist that claim. So first, the claim of Christianity, there's three that we're going to look at here, three claims of Christianity. They're all interconnected. The first one is that Jesus is the risen Lord. Jesus is the risen Lord. This is the story we just looked at. What happens if you were to go back and and read through all of Acts, at the beginning of Acts 3, uh, Peter and John heal this man who had been crippled and was a well-known beggar in Jerusalem near the temple. And they say, you know what? You're asking for money. We don't have any money, but what we do have, we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And this guy stands up and walks. And as you can imagine, this draws a huge crowd. And so the back half of chapter 3 is people going, what is this? We've seen this guy sitting here for years and years and years. And now he's sprung up and he's walking around and he's excited. How did this happen? And they, they preach about Jesus. Well, as we read in a moment ago, the, 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 the council, the Sadducees, the leaders, it says in verse 2, were greatly annoyed because of this, because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrest them, they put them in custody, and and they bring them forward, and that's what we read just a moment ago. And and Peter's message really begins in verse 8. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God rose from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. (laughs) You know what he's saying? Hey, by the way, if you're here to just kind of bug us because we did a nice thing to this guy, we just want you to know how we did it. We did it in the name of Jesus. You killed him. God rose him. You can't stop this. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In other words, the the Jewish leaders were sort of looking at all the rocks that they could use to build their faith and said, ah, this one, we don't need it. Let's throw it out. And that throw out, cast off, unneeded stone has actually become the cornerstone, the pillar, the strength of knowing God. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
This is one of a bunch of different sermons that are given in the book of Acts. I, I don't know if it's a sermon as much as just kind of a, a, a monologue, an answer. And the interesting thing is you look at uh, Peter, especially at his, his messages, his presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts, they basically follow three things. There are three points. Point one, you killed them. Point two, God raised them from the dead. Point three, say you're sorry. Right, that's basically the message. And, and, and here's the thing. Peter ties this idea that there's salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven. Do you see it? Verse 12, given among men by which we must be saved. Why is that? Why is it that, that, that there's no other name, that there's no other way to be saved? It's because, do you see the logic of this? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, now listen, I can predict a lot of things. Okay, we just had a moment ago where we prayed for politics and politicians and kind of this election year. I can predict with fairly high certainty this is going to be a contentious election year. <laughs> wow, Nostradamus up here. How did I see it coming, right? I can predict that. I can predict that, uh, that there's going to be lots of road construction on Ellsworth forever. Right? I can predict that the Southeast Valley is just going to be filled with construction cones. If you have a construction cone leasing company, you're waking up thrilled every day. Right? I can predict that. I can predict the Cardinals will never win the Super Bowl. I can just predict that. And, I, and I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to be wrong. But, but I can predict those things and feel pretty confident in that. Here's the thing. I can't predict my death and resurrection. And neither can you. Here's the deal. If someone can predict their death and their resurrection and then pull it off, you just believe whatever they say. You just follow them. Right? So Jesus is the risen Lord. The reason that we believe that there's salvation in no other name is because he's the only one to predict his death and his resurrection and pull it off. Now, this resurrection, I believe, really happened. There's a number of reasons that I could get into. I'll just share a few briefly. Uh, one is that in all four gospel accounts, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Now, the reason that's significant is because in a court of law during the first century, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in court, which means if you were fabricating a story about the resurrection, you would never make it up where women are the witnesses because no one would believe it. The reason that women were the witnesses is because it really happened that way. That's one reason I believe it. Second reason, this will resonate for those of you who have siblings, is, is James, the brother of Jesus. The book of James at the end of the New Testament is written by James, the brother of Jesus. Let me ask you, what would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? He'd have to rise from the dead. And even then, you'd be like, I don't know. I don't know. Right? And so the fact that James, the brother of Jesus, ends up worshiping Jesus as his Lord is evidence. Jesus rose from the dead. Third thing I could point to is just the transformation of the apostles, of the disciples. They had all run scared. They were terrified. And now what you see actually in verse 13 of Acts 4, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that these were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These men were bold and courageous after running scared. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. 
Jesus is the risen Lord, and because Jesus is the risen Lord, there's salvation in no one else. Here's what Rebecca McLaughlin says in her fantastic book, Confronting Christianity. I highly recommend it. She says this, time and again, the gospels record Jesus doing outrageous things only God can do. Commanding the wind, forgiving sins, feeding multitudes, raising the dead. Jesus claims rule over all of heaven and earth. He presents himself not as one possible path to God, but as God himself. We may choose to disbelieve him, but he cannot be one truth among many. He has not left us that option. Jesus is the risen Lord. He's not the path to God. He is God. Second claim of Christianity is that Jesus is the only mediator the only mediator. We get this from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, which says this, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Think about this verse for a moment. There's one God and there's a mediator between man and God. What does a mediator do? Have you ever had to sit down with a mediator? Do you sit down with a mediator? Do you hire a mediator because the relationship is thriving. No, you you hire a a mediator because there's a dispute, there's a contention. Maybe it's like, hey, let's not go go the the divorce route with lawyers, let's just do a mediator, but there's still contention. Maybe it's a workplace-related dispute, It's, it's tense, there's hostility between the two parties, a mediator comes in and bridges the gap. Well, the same thing is true for us. The classic picture of this is the picture of man and God separated across this canyon, right? You have man on one side, you have God on the other side, and the sort of picture is that we are separated because of our sin, that because we've rebelled against God, because we've sinned by by nature and by choice, we are separated from him. And I remember early on as a follower of Christ, someone gave me this kind of picture. They said, you know, here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And over there on the other side is God. Now, I might be able to jump farther than my three-year-old. And you might be able to jump farther than me. And the best Long jumper, right, the, the LeBron James, Aaron Gordon, the best leapers in the world, they would jump farther than all of us, but we'd all land where? In the Grand Canyon, because the gap is too big. We can't self-mediate our way to God. And therefore, God has provided a bridge. God has provided a mediator through the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's through the cross that we can get across to the other side. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. So the claim of Christianity is that Jesus is the risen Lord. Jesus is the only mediator. And third, that Jesus is the only way. This is one of the most well-known verses about this in John 14. Jesus is teaching his disciples before he goes to the cross, and he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's important to notice, Jesus doesn't say, I'm a way. I'm one truth among many. I'm one path to life. 
He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And then in case we still aren't clear, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the email address to God. Faithinjesus.com. That's the way. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. This means that we believe that everybody spends eternity somewhere, and there's one way to God. God has generously made himself known. God has poured out his life. God has poured out his spirit on his people to be filled with the good news, to share this news all over the world. God is not running from us. God is actually pursuing us. There's one way to him, and it's through Jesus. This, by the way, is why we are happily sending Josh Watt to North Phoenix to plant. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here last week, you can miss a lot if you miss a Sunday. So you should come here regularly. We announced last week that Josh Watt, uh, after the, you know, this summer, is going to be moving to North Phoenix to start our 10th Redemption congregation. And that's a loss for us, and that's hard for us, but that is something we are doing joyfully. Why? Because people everywhere need Jesus. And churches are the main vehicle for equipping and releasing disciples of Jesus to speak good news about Jesus, to offer the world Jesus. And so we're happy to do that because Jesus is the risen Lord, Jesus is the only mediator, and Jesus is the only way. So that's the the claim of Christianity. Now, we resist it. We resist that. I'm guessing that there are some of you here, even right now, who are going, Gosh, that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Like, I, I get what you're saying. I can't really argue with these verses, but I don't feel like I like that very much. I don't know if I want that to be true. Maybe that's true. I don't know if I want that to be true. So why do we resist, why do we resist this, and, and how might we think through those, that resistance? Here's the first reason we resist it is because exclusivity often leads to marginalization. Big word alert. <laughs> I've been coaching t-ball, and uh, the league has a sportsmanship value every week. And I'm coaching three-year-olds, and this week's value was accountability. <laughs> How am I going to teach that to a three-year-old? But you're, y'all aren't three-year-olds, okay? So I can say this. Exclusivity, that means only one way. That approach often leads to marginalization. It leads to oppression. It leads to pushing people out. Here's kind of how this tends to work, is people who think they have the truth, I have the truth, I'm right, everyone else is wrong, that's exclusivity. People who believe I have the truth, often what that leads to is they feel superior. I have the truth and therefore I'm better than the people who don't have the truth. So there's a feeling of superiority that comes from having the truth, that then is, it leads to a, a, a separation. Because I'm better than you, I will separate from you. I will keep you at a distance. You are not to be trusted because you are worse. When you're separate and you don't have a relationship and you don't know somebody, what happens then is you lead to stereotypes and it leads to kind of caricatures. I know what those people are like. You don't know what those people are like. You don't know them. 
but you say, oh, this is what they're like. And once you've caricatured them, then they're not really human beings, but they're something bad. And so it's not that difficult then to take the next step, to marginalize them, to oppress them, to hurt them, to dishonor them. Right? We saw this, just as an example, um, after 9-11. Right? This is an old example. I realize some of you are like, I wasn't born then. Okay, that's fine. Uh, back at Pearl Harbor. Here, you know, like, and it happened there too, to be honest. Here's what happened. Is, is we went, gosh, I don't know about these Muslims. They're dangerous. They have a different approach to truth. Most of us didn't know Muslims, so we were separate from them. So we caricatured them. So you see anyone with a with any kind of turban on an airplane, you go, oh man, this one's going down. And you connect all these dots. And, and, and that kind of approach isn't new in history. Anti-Semitism is about that. There's an incredible movie that was nominated for Best Picture called Jojo Rabbit that's all about this little boy growing up in Nazi Germany. And he believes all of these untrue, crazy, insane things about Jews that has allowed him to keep them at arm's length. This is a lot of times what racism comes from. There's a feeling of superiority that leads to distance, that leads to caricature, that leads to marginalization. What would be the answer to that? Because, I mean, that resistance isn't wrong, is it? I mean, we see that over and over and over. But, but here's the answer. Is that Christianity is about a man dying for his enemies and giving grace to totally undeserving sinners. So Christians should be the people who embrace it and say, we have the truth, but we're not superior. We're not better. We're not smarter. We're not more moral. We were so bad that Jesus had to come to die for us. Now, I realize Christians aren't always that way. Maybe you've been kind of on the receiving end of the superiority and smugness of Christians. Let me tell you, in those moments, they're not acting like Christ. They're not acting shaped by the gospel because the gospel doesn't make us feel superior. It makes us feel grateful. If you feel superior, if you can't wait to go out and slam somebody with that Jesus is the only way, repent. Because that's not in line with the heart of the gospel. The gospel should make us humble. Second reason we resist this is it just seems too narrow-minded. It seems too narrow-minded. It seems like, well, gosh, how? I mean, especially in light of there's all of these different religions out there and there's like billions of people that adhere to these things. Like, how could all these people be wrong? And how could all these people be right? And what if I had been born in another country? What, am I sure that I really would believe this? How objective am I? Like, maybe, maybe we really are all just sort of grasping at some piece of the truth, but no one religion has the whole truth. That's, that's kind of the idea behind this image of the, uh, the blind men and the elephant. Perhaps you've heard this story, heard this illustration. Uh, it's, it's usually been written, but, but here's kind of a cartoon of it that I found. And here's the idea. The idea is that you have all these blind men and they're all touching different parts of the elephant. So the person, the blind man on the, on the leg is like, I think, the ele- I think an elephant's like a tree. So it's like a tree trunk. And the blind man at the tip of the tusks is saying, no, 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 an elephant's like a spear. 
And the person on the side is saying, no, 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 an elephant's like a wall. No, an elephant's like a snake. No, an elephant's like a fan where the, where the ear blows. And because they can't see the whole elephant, they, they can only feel one part of it, in a sense, they're all right, right? Because the leg of an elephant is like a tree, and the tusk of an elephant is kind of like a spear, and so forth. And so the analogy goes, well, gosh, is, maybe this is just what religion is. Is, is maybe Christians are saying, well, here's one piece of God. And Muslims are saying, well, here's another piece of God. And Hindus are saying, well, here's another piece of God. And so on and so on and so on. And, and so the, the thought will go, well, gosh, how can we say that we have the truth? Because maybe we're just like the blind man and the elephant. Well, here, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that the person saying we're all like the blind man and the elephant is claiming to have something that no one else has, which is the ability to see the whole elephant. Right, the only way that that works is if you can actually see the whole elephant. But if you're saying, well, Christians can't see the whole elephant, they just see this one part, and Muslims only see this one part, and Hindus only see this one part. Okay, well then who are you to say you see the whole thing? Talk about proud. Where did you get this knowledge, right? That is actually just as comprehensive and just as exclusive as a claim as all the other ones. It's just veiled in a, in a, in a kind of politeness that when you think through is actually like, wait, 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 wait. You're claiming to have something that no one else has. Tim Keller says this. He says, ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So get this, every religion is making an exclusive truth claim. This is how the world is. This is what God or gods are like. They're all claiming to be right. They could all be wrong, but they can't all be right. We believe that Jesus is the way to God. Here's a third reason we resist this, and this gets a little more personal, kind of out of the intellect and more into the, the relational, is that we know good people who believe other things. I mean, don't you? Don't you have friends that are, they wouldn't call themselves this, but they're secular humanists? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe all that stuff, but I do believe that this all happened through a bang and through... So I'll look to science, that'll be kind of my guide, but I, I don't believe all this Jesus stuff. And you look at them and you go, they're an amazing person. They're kind and they're friendly. They're generous. I would completely trust my kids with them. Right, don't you have friends that are LDS? I mean, don't you want to kind of move into a neighborhood with a lot of Mormon people? Because you can like leave your bike out and not worry it's going to get stolen. Because they're great people. If you take the time to get to know Muslim people, they're often tremendous people. And so, so it's, again, when you have the ability to kind of keep people at a distance and caricature them, this gets difficult. It's a lot, or it's easy. It's a lot harder when you get close. This is one of the reasons I think it's increasingly difficult for young people, for kids and high school students and college students and those just out of college, is because unlike a lot of us, they grow up around a lot more diversity. They grow up, my, my kids grow up with friends who come from Hindu families and Muslim families. That's part of just their school. 
And so we know good people who believe other stuff. And it can feel like, gosh, well, if, if they're wrong, how come they're so great? And if Christians are supposed to be right, how come I know so many bitter, mean, angry Christians? Here, here's, here's the way I think through that, is of course, everyone's made in the image of God. So of course, people are going to do things that represent the goodness of God because they're made in the image of God. And people who are made in the image of God will often do things that are better than their beliefs. And people who are sinners like we are as Christians will often do things that are worse than our beliefs. We're this crazy combination of made in the image of God and totally depraved by sin. And that means that we're constantly going to be surprised at how good people who aren't Christians are and we'll be surprised by how bad people who are Christians are. But here's the fact. Christians are not accepted because we're better, because we're more moral, because we're kinder, because we're more generous. That's not the basis of our relationship with Jesus. What is it? Our relationship with God is possible because of Jesus. That's it. Right? We're all leaping in the Grand Canyon and falling to our death. We're not saved on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of him. Here's the fourth reason why we resist this claim. This is even more personal, is that we want to be Lord of our own lives. It's fascinating when you think about this, what's going on in Acts 4, is it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all these, all these religious leaders who believe totally different things and hated each other. But you know what they could all agree on? They didn't want Jesus. And so sometimes, here's, here's what I think. I think sometimes we hide behind intellectual objections when the fact is we just want to be the own Lord of our lives. We say, oh, well, it's because there can't just be one true path to God and that all just seems so narrow. And that feels like really high-minded and intellectual. The reality is I just want to sleep with my girlfriend. The reality is I just want to be in charge of my money. The reality is I just don't want to have to conform to the expectations of following Jesus. So, so I'll hide behind these arguments about how mean that all is when sometimes I just want to do what I want to do. So I just would ask you, will you be honest with yourself? Be honest with God. Is your resistance, if you're having resistance to this idea that Jesus is the only way, is it really coming from an intellectual place, a reasonable place, or is it coming from a place that you just want to do what you want to do? And Jesus is Lord, is a threat to you. Be honest with yourself. Finally, here's the last reason we resist this claim of Christianity is because we misunderstand the direction of salvation. We misunderstand the direction of salvation. See, we wrongly think that salvation is about trying to get to God. Even the bridge illustration, which I told you about a while ago, and that the Grand Canyon that I was taught early as a Christian, it, it's helpful in that it illustrates this giant gulf between humanity and God. Right? That's a very helpful thing. The problem with it is this. No one is trying to get to God. 
No one's leaping really far. When God looks across the canyon, he sees dead bodies. And he's got to come across the canyon to wake us up and to give us life. Right? Think about this picture. This is actually not a, a very good way to get across. Look, look, look at this maybe from a different angle. Like, <laughs> I mean, and this is just sort of a, a fun and humorous way to think about this, but like, if that was the bridge to get across, do you have a ladder? Right? Because w w even this assumes, well, we're trying to get across. The cross is a lousy bridge. And here's the thing. Jesus does not get us to the edge of the canyon and say, I'm here to show you the way. Now go. Cross the bridge. Climb the ladder. Get over there across to God. Jesus has made it possible for you to achieve salvation. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, I want to show you the way. He says, I am the way. It's, it's him. It's his body that paves the way that brings us across. Here's what Josh Butler, one of the pastors at Redemption Tempe and a wonderful author, he says this. He says, Jesus is not a path we set out on to go find God. Jesus is the way God has come to find us. Jesus is the way that God has come to find us, to give us life, to give us forgiveness, to reconcile us to him. And he's given his spirit to his church that we would go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus, teaching them to obey all that he's commanded because Jesus is with us to the end of the age and he's for us and he wants people to be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The scripture declares that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. The scripture declares that God wants all people to be saved. They won't be, but it's not because God isn't reaching out to his people. It's not because God's holding back. It's not because God's waiting for us to leap across. It's not even because God gave us a bridge and now we take the effort. But God in his grace is pursuing us and he's offering us to come to him in Christ. So what will you do about this? What will you do? Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you're not. What will you do about this truth that Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Will you imagine yourself to be more sophisticated, to be smarter than Jesus? Well, Jesus was a first century guy, and you know, he didn't maybe know about all the other religions. And yeah, but he predicted his death and his resurrection, and he pulled it off. Will you just say, you know what, I... Yeah, I don't know. I, I want to be Lord of my life. Maybe when I'm older. Maybe when I have kids. Maybe someday I'll kind of come around to following Jesus. But for right now, I just want to live for me. Just be honest if that's what you're doing. But don't, don't think you're some uppity intellectual. You're just a hedonist. It's living for your own pleasure right now. So will you be smarter than Jesus? Will you be Lord of your life? Or will you receive this gift of God in Christ? God has come to you and he's opened himself to you. 
And he says, trust me, I'm for you. I will make you new. I will forgive your sin. I will unite you with the Father. I will bring you into my family. That's the offer of Christianity. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reconciling power of Jesus. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, we thank you that in former days, long ago, you spoke through prophets. But in these days, you've spoken through your son, the definitive word of God. Here's who you are. And so, God, I pray that you would fill us with love and with humility because we are not deserving of this gift. But God, would you also fill us with boldness and with courage because Jesus rose from the dead. And this is true, not because of our goodness and not because of our smarts, but because of his power. God, thank you for Jesus. What a gift. We pray in his name, amen.